What the heck is going on with healthcare in Washington? What really just happened? What does it all mean and where do we go from here? We'll find out on part two of this two-part episode of Shift Shapers. Change either paralyzes or energizes. The choice is yours. You're listening to the Shift Shapers podcast. You're about to learn firsthand from businesses and entrepreneurs who have successfully shaped the shifts in their industries. Get ready to become the change that you want to see. Here's your host and chief transformation strategist, David Saltzman. This episode of the Shift Shapers podcast is brought to you by Captivated Health, a captive insurance arrangement that helps small and mid-market companies escape the fully insured marketplace and delivers stability, control, and savings without watering down employees' benefits or increasing their premium share. If you have clients in the educational institution or the engineering vertical, go to our website at CaptivatedHealth.com or click on the company logo on the Shift Shapers website. Now, one of the things that's going on, this is not new, but all of a sudden there's a renewed emphasis on it, is there's a lawsuit by House Republicans to stop some of the government payments reimbursing insurers for subsidies that lower costs for folks on getting insurance through the exchanges. Can you give us some context about that? And, and do you see that actually having an impact? Yes. So, you know, essentially the law allows, so there's the subsidies that they are premium tax credits. So if you're a low-income person with an in, you know, that qualifies for those subsidies, so you don't have a valid offer of employer coverage or or other coverage, and you go to the exchange and you apply for individual market coverage and you get a subsidy, you can get it if your family income is under 400% of the poverty level. There's some degree of subsidy. Then in addition to that, for the lowest income part of that population, the law allowed for not just subsidies of your premium, but also subsidies of your cost sharing. So when you went to the doctor, you were limited in what cost sharing you were paying. And you, you would just pay your amount. Like, and I mean, it varied on based on services. But say you went to an office visit, and I'm kind of making up the numbers. I don't remember exactly what they are off the top of my head. But maybe you only pay $10, even though the you know, the plan that you purchased really had, you know, $35 office visit copay or something like that. And so then the carrier would get reimbursed the difference for that cost sharing that you weren't paying because you were so low income and you qualified for it. And, you know, it's pretty technical about why they're challenging it. But essentially, the House Republican Caucus actually sued the administration over the way that they had implemented these cost sharing requirements. And the administration under the Obama administration was vigorously defending what they had done. And the Trump administration doesn't have to take that mantle up. They could say, you know what? We were implementing these cost sharing subsidies illegally. And, or, you know, they don't have to necessarily admit that, but they could just stop defending that lawsuit. And right now that would, would sort of prevent them from using those cost subsidies and giving those people that cost sharing subsidies in the 2018 plan year. And that's another point of very much instability for the insurers because they're enrolling people that are really low income who are used to buying plans with much lower cost sharing than they really have. And so would they have to adjust the cost sharing to make it something palatable for those people that they could actually afford? 
Or would those people just decide that the coverage wasn't worth it to them, even with subsidized premiums, because the office visit, you know, cost sharing wasn't, it was too high. The cost of prescription drugs was too high. So the insurers really don't know. And their point is that unless this is clarified, they really need to know that because it affects their pricing, it affects their marketing, and it's going to affect their enrollment. So that definitely is, you know, a potential factor towards stability, and especially to insurers that have to make a decision, you know, in the next month or two about whether or not they want to enter into this market you know, for good for 2018, if they're going to make a commitment to that, to that market. And, you know, they're insurance companies. They don't like uncertainty, just kind of definitional. So I think that that is an area that the Trump administration is going to have to address with the individual market carrier community to kind of let them know how that's going to go down and provide them with some insurances. It doesn't mean that they necessarily have to pay the cost-sharing subsidies, but I think they have to be very clear about what they intend to do and how they tend to reach that population and how they're going to make that coverage meaningful to that low-income population. Because, you know, honestly, if they buy coverage, even if their premiums are subsidized, they're still putting in for premiums. But if they can't afford the amount that they're going to have to outlay to go to the doctor, that would impact, you know, an individual market purchaser's decision, I'm sure. Are there things that the Trump administration can do on the regulatory side to stave off the lawsuit, or do they have to wait for the lawsuit to make its way through the judiciary? I presume the lawsuit was let because this is part of the legislation and not part of the regulatory framework. Right. I mean, I think the the, the lawsuit is in large part based on the way that the cost-sharing subsidies were implemented and then paid out. So it would be possible, I believe, for them to make some changes to perhaps address some of the concerns raised in the lawsuit. And again, I think that they need to talk with the carriers and come up with some type of plan to make the carriers comfortable to enter that market. Because if you don't, if you have service areas where no issuer is willing to enter, obviously, then we have a a failed system. So, but I mean, we way back before the ACA, before any of this, there were parts of the individual market in the United States that didn't have carriers in their service area. I mean, it was a terrible situation, but there was in Washington state, there were large chunks of the state at one point where no carrier wanted to go because they couldn't make a profit. And then the state took steps to draw carriers back into the marketplace. So there's always something that can be done to increase competition. And I would hope that the HHS under the Price Administration wouldn't let consumers down in that way. So one of the things that every time I talk to producer groups, I get a question, and there are lots of advisors who are scratching their heads. I'd like to get your opinion on this this thing we keep hearing. It's part of the catechism that you hear on the Sunday shows and whatnot, the selling across state lines. First of all, is it just so much gorilla dust? And second of all, how do you deal with McCarran Ferguson and the State Departments of Insurance if that's an idea that you want to proffer? Well, I think, and you know, it's interesting that this is coming up you know, in a Trump administration with Tom Price as the HHS secretary. So my personal view on coverage across state lines is that it will not reduce costs because if an insurer is, you know, I live in Pennsylvania now, 
if a insurer comes in from Iowa, they would have to, and they want to sell you know insurance in Pennsylvania, even if they were able to use their Iowa plan, their Iowa mandates, their Iowa, you know everything Iowa regulated, and they come into Pennsylvania, they still are going to have to you know rent a network in the Philadelphia area. They're going to have to pay the prices here. They're going to have to establish a marketing force here. They're going to have to establish offices here and pay rent here. They're probably going to want to start lobbying in Harrisburg. They're going to have to you know, pay for commercials in this marketplace. All of these things that cost. And so quickly, all of the things that might be less expensive in the other part of the country, they have to incur the costs here. So just simple economics. I doubt that not only would it reduce costs, but I I doubt that that many people would try. And my belief that a lot of people won't try goes back to the state of Georgia because Georgia passed legislation and altered their state law to allow essentially out-of-state carriers to come in and sell in Georgia And they did that probably about 10 years ago. And to date, no one has come. Maine has a similar law. No one's there. So while it's maybe a nice idea in theory, it's just one of those things. A lot of things are nice ideas in theory, but they don't necessarily work out in practice. And many, many people will tell you that, you know, the American Academy of Actuaries is a very nonpartisan group that's really all about the insurance math has done a lot of research on this. They can you know, give you a lot of studies. These state insurance commissioners are very wary of it. So there's you know, a, a lot of evidence to the fact. The other thing though, to point out is that Georgia allowed it and it didn't help, but it also hasn't hurt their market because no one's come. So sometimes things, you know, you know, sometimes a lot of times it's like my kids, I sometimes, my husband will be like, why did you let, tell Luke, my six-year-old, that he could vacuum the living room floor? And I was like, I will always let a child vacuum because they won't do as good of a job as I, uh, I'm going to do, but you know, it, it can't hurt and it might help. So sometimes I think about coverage across state lines and how it played out in Georgia. They thought it was going to help, but it didn't, but it also didn't hurt. I'm not so sure if you did that on a national legislative scope that that would be the case, though, because I don't know that you wouldn't have people trying. And I also don't know that there wouldn't be grand expectations. You know, when I let my six-year-old vacuum, I have no expectation that every crumb is going to be sucked up. So I have concerns about, you know, maybe legislation that, you know, we all have put these grand hopes on and then they it fails to deliver. And I think there's so many more things that could be done on a federal legislative or regulatory level that would reduce prices and increase competition more. But that all being said, I think your question was like, how could you do it on a federal level? And there are um, you know, some interesting ways. The To some degree, in health reform, they had a nod to coverage across state lines, and they were going to allow multi-state plans. And that hasn't really taken off either, I think, for a lot of the same reasons I raised. And they had regulation of those multi-state plans. It was actually done federally. And the multi-state plans do have to meet far less hoops than other plans on the exchanges do. But you just don't really see them you know, being done. 
you could do something, you know, in the long-term care space and in some of the life insurance space, they have, you know, the interstate compact where they have products approved through the compact that are able to come to market a little bit quicker and can be offered in multiple states. So you could maybe use an interstate compact model for health insurance, and that's been looked at over the years. So those are some ways that they might want to move forward with that if they were going to do it on a federal level. Right. But in practicality, none of those efforts have run headlong into the state departments of insurance. And, you know, as those of us who suffered through or sat through some of the small group and individual healthcare reforms in the 90s, it seems difficult for me to wrap my head around the fact that Pennsylvania is going to let an Iowa plan come in and not meet all of the Pennsylvania mandates and all of the regs for Pennsylvania. I mean, I, I, I don't, I kind of take your point. I think that if it actually comes to implementation, it's, it's going to be challenging and messier than it seems when you're just talking about it as a concept. Yeah, I agree. I'm not a fan personally. I do think if they were going to try and do it, the one model that might work would be the interstate compact because that is a process. They have experience with it on long-term care and some of the life and financial services products. And there are protections and the state insurance commissioners are involved. And if you're going to become you know, part of the compact, you do not ignore the insurance commissioners and they come up with uniform standards and then they agree to them. So you would probably have to look at that type of process in order to get their buy-in. You know, the insurance commissioners are a pretty powerful bunch when they get together. And I think they have a lot of credibility about what will and what will not work. And they represent a wide range. You know, they're everything from political appointees to elected officials to people that have been in the insurance industry for a really long time and have been in that job for a really long time. You have Republicans, you have Democrats, and they wield a lot of clout. I think that they'll they'll speak up here. And if this does move forward, they'll work very hard to make sure it's in a way that they feel comfortable with whatever products are being offered in their states. I have a hard time believing that that will be able to be, you know, jammed down anybody's throats without them ensuring the protections. And I think that governors will be interested in that as well. And now a word from our sponsor. Captivated Health is a single source solution for your clients and prospects in the education and engineering verticals. The founders of Captivated Health have 35 years experience working with healthcare and benefit clients. And over that time, they've developed a keen understanding of the unique problems mid-market clients experience. Frustrated by a lack of control, the unpredictability of ever-increasing healthcare costs, and the pressures and regulations of the Affordable Care Act, these groups have been adrift in the fully insured commercial marketplace. Until now. Captivated Health has built a program that solves those problems and does so with virtually no disruption to employees while saving clients millions of dollars. We wanted you to be among the first to know that Captivated Health is building a national distribution partner network so you can bring this cutting-edge solution to your education and engineering clients that you advise. To learn more about Captivated Health's solution, go to our website at www.captivatedhealth.com or click on our logo on the Shift Shapers website. Sure. We've got about five minutes left. A couple of other topics that I, I thought might be interesting to explore. One of the things we heard a little bit of while this legislative effort was kind of trying to make its way through the House and Senate was the Cadillac tax. Is the Cadillac tax going to be the next doc fix? Is, is it just going to kind of be kicked down the road 
regardless of what happens? Or is there an appetite for getting rid of it altogether? Well, you know, what Speaker Ryan and President Trump have said in the last few days consistently is that they are moving on to tax reform. And President Trump has said that this is really actually where his heart lies. I don't really know about that. I do know it's where Paul Ryan's heart lies. He has been a long time interested in national comprehensive tax reform. And I think that people that are supportive of the employer-based system and the excise tax is, you know, is affected that way or also the exclusion on income tax provided by um, employer-based insurance, and then also the payroll tax benefits to providing employer tax, tax employer-based coverage. As we look at large-scale national tax reform, all of those things come on the table. So the excise tax is on the books right now. It's still scheduled to go in place in 2020. You know, the Department of Treasury at this point in time has to assume that that is happening and it's you know, two short plan years away from implementation. So they're going to have to get busy on setting that up if, if they plan to move forward with it. Or, you know, and that, that will be, but it will be considered as part of national tax reform, I'm sure. And then the question is, if there's the will to get rid of it, and there is some bipartisan, you know, a lot of bipartisan wills to get rid of it, what is it replaced with? And of course, some people think that they should replace it with a tax or a cap on the exclusion and also possibly the payroll tax benefits of providing employer co- coverage. You know, that's actually very similar and actually probably far more regressive than the excise tax as it's currently known. But if you are a proponent of the employer-based system and you want to keep the tax preferred status, I think that looking at the excise tax and its status and how, you know, it does, even if, if we pretend that, you know, say national tax reform doesn't happen either, and the excise tax is still there, then it could become like the dock fix and get kicked down the road. But eventually the dock fix needed to be dealt with. But this whole issue of taxation of employered sponsor coverage one way or another, you know, is something that is going to have to be dealt with. And I think a national conversation needs to be had about the value of employer-sponsored coverage, the benefits it brings, you know, its tax status, the individual market, the changing nation of nature of the workforce. I mean, the gig economy is growing. The cost of providing coverage and benefit information on an individual level, what we can do in terms of cost containment when we offer individual policies instead of employer policies, you have the economy of scale, the employer-based system, all of these things are going to come to head. And I think there's a very good possibility if we have a national tax reform conversation for real, that these things will all be addressed. So even if you you think that the other parts of health reform don't move forward legislatively or other changes aren't made, if you move forward with national tax reform, which everyone says that they want to do, they're going to have to talk about this. So in the two minutes we've got left, if we bounce back to the legislative side, the last question that I asked in the opening, maybe you can help us answer at least from from where you see things, is where do we go from here? What's possible? What do you think is going to happen? Yeah, there's a bunch of small bills that were introduced in the House, and I think there were a lot of things that had you know been introduced in the last Congress that were healthcare-related, like changes to the wellness um, rules. 
There was some changes to the definition of stop loss insurance. There was some changes relative to allowing physicians and health plans to negotiate AHPs, kind of old, old issues that were introduced in bill form so far. And the House was actually asked, they were working on the broad scale legislation, they were moving those bills. And there's more of them out there, and there are more to be had. There's actually a lot of, you know, whole scale change to the ACA, very, very controversial. Pick apart little tiny issues, little pieces of the ACA, and it's thousand pages. You know, everyone has a pet peeve there, and a lot of them can be addressed by legislation. And a lot of times they can be addressed in a bipartisan manner. And so I think we're going to see a number of those bills. I mean, many of them are already floating out there. It's a new Congress. More bills will be introduced. Many of those bills were introduced in the last Congress and the Congress before, and they had a degree of bipartisan support. Those are the types of things that may be able to move forward. And I think were what they were hoping for with phase three, but they weren't able to really articulate well the first time around. But all of those bills could come back and you know, businesses, agents, and brokers kind of have some opportunity too, I think, to to suggest some good ideas. And then you could move those small pieces of legislation. It will take a lot longer to do it that way. And some will fail and some will get stalled and some may pass. But it gives Republicans and Democrats a chance to work together in a less confrontational way. And they can also pick and choose the issues that are most important to them and their constituents. So you may have, you know, Lawmakers that are regionally based have a extreme interest in a provision or lawmakers that have a lot of hospitals in their district have an interest in a provision. And, you know, even though they're from different parties might have worked, want to work together, different congressional committees may have heard different issues coming up time and time again and want to tackle them together. So that's how I think that they could quickly advance some stuff and, and keep moving forward with health care issues. And actually, the Congress already has the two bills that passed through the House last week. They passed two health care bills. You know, one was on AHPs and the other was on um, some changes to some of the antitrust language relative to physician and provider negotiators. You know, I'm not sure that either one of those two bills are, you know, I, I question what, you know, are they going to have a gigantic market impact? Maybe, maybe not. But I mean, they passed the House quickly without anybody noticing, and they both passed on a bipartisan basis. Well, bipartisan and and less confrontational are certainly two things that are devoutly to be wished. Jessica, thank you again for sharing your expertise with the Shift Shapers audience. Jessica Waltman, Principal at Forward Health Consulting. We look forward, as always, to your next visit with us. Thanks, Jess. Thanks, David. The Shift Shapers podcast is a production of Strategic Vision Publishing and David Saltzman. This podcast may not be reproduced in any form, in whole or in part, without the express written permission of the producers. All rights reserved.